when suddenly your doorbell rings. And it's a fellow believer who you know quite well. So you politely invite them inside. You make a pot of coffee. You exchange some pleasantries, but eventually do have to ask, so what brings you in? Your brother or sister in Christ appears to get nervous. They fidget with their fingers. They stumble over their words. But they eventually work up the courage to say, Well, in light of some recent events I've been through, I'm struggling with my faith and considering abandoning it entirely. And I just needed someone to talk to. What do you say in that moment? Well, at first, you might not say anything. Instead, you listen patiently, you express empathy, and if it gets that far, you put an arm around them and weep with them. But at some point, you will have to say something. And if you believe that Jesus is God's son, and that faith in him is the only way to peace with God, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life, then you can't help but try to persuade them to reconsider. But how do you do that? How might you motivate this tired, discouraged, and uncertain believer to keep the faith when they're tempted to throw in the towel? The author of Hebrews may have been asking himself that same question throughout the course of writing this letter. Many of the Christians hearing his sermon are exhausted, beleaguered, and wavering in their faith, to the point of thinking about abandoning it completely. So in our passage this morning, the author shows us four different ways of motivating those believers to keep the faith. And we should hold on to these truths if we hope to motivate others to keep the faith. Or for those times when we need motivation ourselves. So open up to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your church. Lord, I pray for our church this morning. I ask that you watch over those people gathered here in this room to worship you. I pray that our worship would be honoring to you, beneficial for us, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in this Sunday morning. I pray that you would comfort us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us. You know what we need better than we do. And so I pray that you would provide for our needs through your word, through your spirit this morning. I pray for those who are not here. As we mentioned, we have a number of people who are sick. We pray for those dealing with acute illnesses who normally would be here. We pray for those with chronic illnesses who can rarely, if ever, be here. I ask that you watch over those people dealing with sickness this morning and any other morning. I also pray that you would be with those in our church who are Grieving those in our church who are celebrating those in our church who are traveling uh, Whatever they might find themselves in uh, I pray for the people of this church 
that you would unify us, that you would sanctify us, that you would provide for us and help us be the church and the people you call us to be, not just for this hour and 15 minutes today, but throughout the week and throughout the months and throughout the years. And Lord, again, thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the comfort, the encouragement that it provides us, but also the challenges. I pray that you would be with us as we read from your word this morning. Give us open hearts, open ears, open minds to what you have to say from your word today. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first way we might motivate someone to keep the faith is by recasting how they got to the point of abandoning it. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. The author says there, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This is a quote from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Suffering is a common entry point to doubt and discouragement. Someone loses a job, goes through a divorce, mourns the death of a loved one, or receives a shocking health diagnosis. Any form of suffering can make a person wonder whether God is real, or even worse, if he cares. But in these verses, the author of Hebrews recasts our suffering in the light of Jesus. First, in verse 3, he reminds us that Christ suffered too. Now, how is thinking deeply about Christ's suffering on the cross helpful in the midst of our suffering? Well, it tells us that we're not the first. We're not the only people who have ever suffered. And in a strange way, that reminds us that we are not alone. Jesus suffered too. And God still cared for him. So God just might still care for you in the midst of your suffering as well. But second, he also tells us that our suffering could be worse. In verse 4. Now trust me, 
I know how cruel that can sound. We never want to quickly, flippantly, or glibly pull that card. And if we do, we can come across as cold, distant, and dismissive of someone else's pain. We have to acknowledge all of that. But we also can't avoid the mild rebuke that is verse 4. And this rebuke exists because if we're honest about it, we do have a way of drowning ourselves in self-pity when things go wrong for us. Sometimes we need to recognize our tendency to cry, woe is me. And while our suffering really may be great, we can also acknowledge that none of us will ever suffer as much as Jesus did. So we view our suffering differently in the light of Christ. And third, in verse 5, our suffering could be a form of God's loving discipline. That word discipline has some negative baggage associated with it. But the kind of discipline we're talking about in Hebrews 12 is not punitive. It's not a punishment. This discipline is formative. It isn't vindictive, ill-timed, or ineffective, the way discipline can often be from our earthly parents. Rather, it's given for our good, at the right time, in the appropriate measure. Our suffering, if we understand it as God's loving discipline, doesn't prove that God doesn't care about us. It proves the opposite. It proves that we are his children. At times, God may allow us to suffer for the sake of training us, shaping us, and forming us. The way a loving parent does for their child, or a competent coach does for an athlete under their leadership. Now, sure, that discipline might not be pleasant. The author says so in verse 11. But it can grow us in Holiness. It might not be as senseless as we think it is. So one way to motivate a doubting or discouraged believer to keep the faith is to recast their experience. Help them see or understand their hardship in a different light, in the light of Christ. But let's say you try that with your friend over coffee. And though you did and said everything right, with all the gentleness, all the care, all the nuance that these kinds of words require, they're still not convinced. What do you say then? Well, thankfully, the author has more tools in his belt. A second way to motivate that Christian to keep the faith is to give clear instruction. Let's pick up in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So after issuing the commands of verses 12 through 14, which we'll come back to in a moment, the author reminds these believers of the story of Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 25, the selfish and conniving Jacob seizes the opportunity to buy his twin brother Esau's family blessing, which belonged to him because he was the older of the two. Esau was starving. His hands were drooping. His knees were weak after a long day out hunting. But Jacob only agreed to share his food if Esau gave him his birthright. That birthright was the last of Esau's concern at the moment, since he was starving. So he agrees to sell it on Jacob's terms and allows himself to get fleeced. Things get really messy in chapter 27 when Esau's eggs finally come home to roost. Now we might ask, what was Esau's core blunder? What was his most basic sin? What lesson are we supposed to learn from that example? Well, we might say that Esau's blunder was short-sightedness. Short-sightedness. He exchanged long-term blessing in the future for temporary relief in the present. Keeping our faith in a world filled with suffering, opposition, and questions is hard. It can leave us feeling weary, like Esau. And in the face of all this, we may convince ourselves that our life would be easier if we just stopped following Jesus. On top of that, the commands in this passage, striving for peace with others, pursuing holiness, resisting sin, those commands are not for the faint of heart. The promised blessing for a life lived in obedience to Christ often seems far off and useless when we think of the sacrifices that we must make now. But the author reminds us not to be short-sighted. Learn the lesson of Esau. Namely, that the future blessing of keeping the faith drastically outweighs the temptation of temporary relief. So by now, maybe you feel like you're getting somewhere with your struggling friend. They're thinking about their suffering in a different way. They're also considering whether immediate relief from their current predicament is good enough reason to trade their birthright as God's children by faith in Jesus Christ. That's real progress. If nothing else, by God's grace, you've persuaded them to at least slow down before they make any big decisions. But you still get the sense that there's more work to be done. So you try another approach. 
A third way to motivate your struggling sibling in Christ to keep the faith is to remind them of what they'll be missing if they give up now. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the Hebrews beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. One commentator calls these verses the rhetorical climax of the entire book of Hebrews. And that's saying a lot, because there's a lot there. I don't think you can blame them. This truly is a majestic passage. What the Old Testament Israelites saw at Mount Sinai after God led them out of Egypt was magnificent. In fact, it was terrifying. But what Christians get to experience is even more amazing. It's not something you shy away from. It's something you cling to. You have come to God's holy presence. You get to see God's kingdom. Here the angels celebrate. The saints are raised. The image of God within us is restored to its rightful glory. And best of all, Jesus crucified, resurrected, and ascended. He's there. Do you really want to miss out on that? Is our current suffering so bad that we would forfeit a reward like that? Is temporary relief really so great that you would trade these kinds of privileges for it? Have you taken for granted the amazing gifts that God has already given you now and will one day give you down the road? Have you forgotten the blood that Jesus shed for you? The blood that justified you? Don't give up now. Press on in faith, even when it's hard, knowing the glory that lies ahead of you. So now you really feel like you're getting somewhere. Your friend is rethinking their suffering. They're considering Esau's error. And they're remembering that reward which lies ahead. You can already see their eyes brightening, their back getting a little straighter, and their knees getting a bit stronger. But then just for good measure, you do throw in one more approach. And surprise, it's an approach we've already seen multiple times throughout the book of Hebrews. That fourth and final way to motivate this believer to keep the faith 
is to give them an honest warning. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Someday soon, on the day of judgment, God is going to shake everything up. And when he does, the stuff that doesn't last will fall away. Only what's worth keeping will remain. Like a child looking for stones in a riverbed, a sifting will take place. The same way that water, sand, and tiny minerals will float away. Only what's precious in God's sight, his kingdom, his people, will survive that shakeup. These verses are one of the many clear warnings in the book of Hebrews. And this warning concerns God's very real future judgment. In the end, there is only one kingdom that's worth keeping. Only God's kingdom will stand the test of eternity. Likewise, only those who have received that kingdom, only those who have believed in and followed Jesus by the power of the Spirit, will remain. So press on. Keep the faith. Take your place in that eternal kingdom that will not be shaken, that is not going anywhere, secured for you by Jesus himself, rather than being consumed. You know, different people are motivated in different ways. Some people respond well to positive reinforcement while others are more driven by negative reinforcement. Some people are motivated by measurable progress, others by public affirmation, others by a sense of personal accomplishment, others by grades, others by competition, others by a quiet voice, and others by a fierce yell. And as we press on in our faith, we may need different forms of motivation at different times. Sometimes we need to recast our suffering in the light of Christ's suffering. At other times, we need simple instruction to avoid short-sightedness. Still other times, we need to be reminded of just how great our eternal reward really is. And yet other times, we need an honest warning about the reality of God's judgment. So wherever you are right now, And whatever you need to be inspired to press on in faithfulness to Christ, 
Whether you're trying to motivate another believer to persevere or you need motivation yourself. Perhaps the words of Hebrews 12 can give you some helpful resources. Of course, you will need to use them with some discernment. A seminary professor recently told me that half of pastoral ministry is determining whether a fellow believer needs a hug or a kick. And as you can imagine, that requires wisdom. Likewise, we need wisdom when applying these words to others or to ourselves. Verses 3 through 11 and 25 through 29 may fall more into the kick category. Meanwhile, verses 12 through 17 and 18 through 24 fall more into the hug category. Depending on who you're talking to and when you're talking to them, some may be more effective than others. But these words are all here for a reason. The kicks and the hugs all have a place. And they can all motivate us or the believer who knocked on your door to keep our faith to the end. But whichever approach might work best for you in your present circumstances, I'd also point you to the same passage we closed with last week. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Commentators debate whether those two verses conclude chapter 11 or introduce chapter 12. And I think they do both. Because whether it's the words of Hebrews 12 or the stories of Hebrews 11 that best motivate you to keep the faith, the verses right in between, verses 1 and 2, are always fitting. Keep running your race with Jesus as your foundation, your strength, and your endurance. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Lord, thank you that in a world that is so often shaken, we look forward to a kingdom that will not be shaken. Even right now, we're already part of a kingdom that will not, cannot be shaken. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for that hope. But Lord, we also acknowledge that keeping the faith in a fallen world is not for the faint of heart. We can't do it on our own. We need your spirit within us to Help us and preserve us. We also need our siblings in Christ to encourage us and motivate us. And we need passages like Hebrews 12 to challenge us. Whether it's recasting our suffering, whether it's being reminded of our future reward, whether it's being warned about judgment, 
or whether it's simply getting simple instruction. I pray that you would use Hebrews 12, that you would equip the believers around us, that you would equip us as well to motivate your children, to receive our reward, to secure our inheritance that is guaranteed for us by faith in Christ. Help us press on, Lord, when we're tired, when we're exhausted, when we're frustrated, when we're discouraged. Help us keep the faith for your glory. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.